city spent so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. So welcome to the Green is the Color podcast. My my guest today is the first time I've had a guest on who was my employer uh, at one point, reaching all the way back to 1998. I'm happy to welcome Rob Hoxford. Rob, how are you? Good. Good. Thanks, Billy, for having me on. No, I'm excited about this. This is, this will be a good time. So I'll go through uh, a little bit of a um, a little bit of a bio, which actually starts with your high school years, and we'll do some greatest hits, and then we'll get into some questions because you've got a lot to say here, and um, I want people to hear yeah. it. So Rob went to Blanchett High School eight night from 1981 to 1984, and then ended up with FC Seattle in 1985. From there, he played at Shoreline Community College from 85 to 86, Warner Pacific University for Portland Timber Bernie Fagan, 87 to 88. While at Shoreline, Rob was a first-team All-Northwest Athletic Association of Community Colleges. Is that correct, Rob? That is correct, and that's a big mouthful. <laughs> it is. N-W-A-A-C-C. And then in 1987, uh, when he was playing with the um, – in the Northwest Collegiate Soccer Conference, he said scored 12 goals. He was in the top 10 of the conference while playing for Warner Pacific University, um, a team that ended up his 1988 year, ninth in the nation for NAIA schools, um, where he also played with some names that have been in uh, professional Portland soccer, uh, Dick McCormick, Oth Nongnathong, uh, Steve Anchetta, and many more. After Warner Pacific, Rob started coaching at Mountain View High School. He was there from 1989 to 1994, and they were uh, Washington State champs, um, I think more than once with Mountain View. In 1993, Rob started with the Portland Pride indoor soccer team, and he was there through 1999, which was actually another franchise when he started uh, with the Portland Pythons. How did that go, Rob? Was that a little... We'll get to how the Pythons and Pride ended up and what your roles were with those. But I will say quickly that Rob was ended as a general manager of the Portland Pythons, um, which is an interesting road because it started as a game day volunteer with the Portland Pride. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, there's just one very minor edit. I was with the uh, Portland Pride Pythons from 93 to 98. So with 1999... Um, and I know you and I were there both together in 98, yeah. but uh, I was not with the team in their final year, which was 1999, okay. but everything else spot on. Thanks, Billy. Yeah. Well, now I know why they folded, right? Because you weren't with them. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that's the only like reason to too, that. right? <laughs> Thanks for correcting me. I, I'm I just, sure uh, they naturally assumed. Well, we'll get into the few, yeah, a few dollars here and there. Well, there there's that. <laughs> I was just right? saying a few dollars here and there on a budget. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh yeah, and you know, it's funny, we're recording this on February 4th, but yesterday, February 3rd, was the um, Portland Pride's birthday, uh, according yeah. to uh, my research, when they were announced as a team in 1993. So, Rob, I'm going to go all the way back to the start as much as I can, and can you talk about your youth soccer 
what it was like as a player growing up in your in uh, before you got to high school. So kind of as a younger player in a club soccer. And while you're doing that, feel free to get in to talk about being a and nobody hang up when I say this a Sounders fan because you were right there in the thick of the NASL Sounders, which is also pretty cool. Um, so can you just talk about that time in your life and in the game of soccer and sort of how you followed it and what it meant yeah. to you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Billy. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Seattle, three, uh, older brothers, um, that also played soccer before me. I used to, um, even before school started for me, used to take their uniforms out when they were at school all day and go play in the backyard for hours. And my mom probably appreciated that. I just wanted to play soccer from a very young age. I was, uh, very into it. And my youth soccer uh, upbringing was a lot of rec soccer, but the Seattle Sounders in my hometown of Seattle was the team that I used to go watch way back in 1974. They played at Memorial Stadium, a 15,000-seat stadium, and I got exposed to that through one of my soccer friends on my team when I was a kid and all of seven or eight years old. And um, that uh, very first Sounder game that I saw versus San Jose Earthquakes in 1974 um, just uh, absolutely vaulted me into this passion for the game. And uh, one ironic thing about that game real quick is that uh, uh, the Sounders had a forward by the name of Pepe Fernandez. And Pepe was uh, kind of a veteran player at that time of his career. But in 1974, he was one of the star players for the Sounders. He broke his leg in the game. Um, and it was kind of devastating for a seven, eight-year-old kid watching a player um, get carted off in an ambulance back in those days and it was broken leg and the Sounders ended up winning the game. I don't know, three to one or three to two, but the game itself, uh, I can still obviously remember a lot of details about it. And it was really exciting for me to go to a professional game, probably cost six bucks to get in or five, $5, maybe on a youth ticket, it was $2 and 50 cents. It was insane to be able to go down and watch those games. Uh, felt like it was a very high level, but at that time, obviously in the early 70s, it was hard to see the EPL games of the world or something in South America at that time. So we had what we had, and um, I would uh, keep playing soccer from a youth level, and then I started getting um, asked to play for select teams uh, and some premier teams when I started getting closer to my teenage years, still um, involved with the Sounders games, going to watch them. And I really, about the time I probably hit 10, 11, 12, was starting to get enough attention where I was like, I really want to go as far as I can as a player with this game. And just there was just everything I could do to read about the game, to watch the news at night. Uh, and there was no ESPN at the time. Go to Sounder Games. That was everything I could possibly get my arms around. And, and I did that. Um, and then basically um, right after, uh, a couple select teams and premier teams in the Seattle area. I played for Seattle United up there in Seattle. Um, then my high school um, uh, uh, years started. So that's kind of what my youth and my Seattle Sounders allegiance was. The, the one quick side note with the Sounders, and you've pr probably heard this before and the Timber fans, it's insane to think that I got to see a player like Pele play in person, uh, Johan Cruyff play in person, Georgie Best, Esabio, um some of the Portland Timber players, the Robbie Reds and Brinks, uh, you know, even a, I don't know, these players that we got a chance to see in our youth, you look back on it, you think, you know, you'd go to the games, you'd see all this skill, and you'd hear these big names. And I, to this day, still can't believe, you know, I saw Pele play, I think, once or twice up in Seattle. And then one other thing that drew me into the NASL was, um, I think it was 1976, uh, had some friends 
we went down to Portland and we watched the Sounders play in Portland. And back in the day in Civic Stadium in left field, center field, they had these bleachers that were set up for the Sounders fans. And then, you know, you had maybe 800, maybe 900 Sounder fans that would come down the I-5, go watch the games. And I did the same thing going up to Empire Stadium in Vancouver and watch the Whitecaps play against Seattle up in Seattle, uh, excuse me, in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. And it was crazy to go to these games because now it's not our home stadium with our home fans and uh, we're the enemy and we're in these stadiums with raucous crowds. Portland always brought it from a fan standpoint. So did Vancouver and Seattle for that matter. So that was kind of my upbringing with uh, the Sounders and, and youth soccer right there. So I got a few follow-ups if you don't mind that when you yeah. said, so I hope people have seen pictures of, the civic stadium when it was a baseball field in that whole left field area yeah. but the bleachers you're talking about were those on the field level like in that did they put them there or did they put you up above and the reason it was I asked, okay it was yeah. up above yeah and a real quick side story to that is that it was up above and if mm -hmm. you uh if you remember fenway park in left field there used to just be the green monster and there was no seats up there now if you watch a game in major league baseball there's seats up on top of the wall basically um, it, back in the day in Civic Stadium, you would have left field with maybe five or seven rows of bleachers above the wall and center field maybe had 10 or 11 rows, rows of bleachers. And um, uh, I tell you what, those bleachers were uh, falling apart back in the 70s, even the stadium's old. There's a lot of history to it. Very kind of a scary prospect of being out there in the outfield watching a game. <laughs> and the uh, to Memorial uh, Stadium, right? That's that field. You're close, right? When you go to a game there, mm -hmm. you're really close to the game. So it's not just that you were seeing these great players. Uh, you were seeing yeah. them up close. And for a kid who's so into soccer that he's, you know, doing that all day uh, and just really falling in love. That kind of access you can't replicate, I don't think, when you're trying to build passion um, for yeah. somebody in the game. It was, yeah, it was great. And one thing about Memorial Stadium, yeah, to your point, uh, the, the bleachers basically came down to the field. There was no track. Uh, there was It was a football-specific stadium, so they put the soccer lines, tried to widen it as far as they could before they hit the concrete. Uh, but, yeah, the, the, you were much closer um, at Memorial Stadium, and they put ended up putting portable bleachers in at both ends of the stadium behind the goals because they were selling out some of their games in the early or 74 and 75. So they knew that they had to expand a little bit before they went to the kingdom in 1976. And you, you also saw Harry Redknapp play, which is kind of cool uh, yep, from sure this did. standpoint. And I believe, um, I believe Jeff Hurst spent a year there as well. So Jeff Hurst, if you're a West Ham fan, uh, yeah, for 1976, uh, Harry Redknapp, uh, Bobby Howe, and I know you mm -hmm. just had Bobby recently. I really enjoyed that interview on your podcast. Uh, and uh, so Harry Redknapp and Bobby Howe came over because they knew Jimmy Gabriel. And um, it's kind of it's, it's an interesting story, and I think Bobby Howe spoke about it. When Harry Redknapp and Bobby Howe came over, they were getting up there in age, but the Sounders hadn't fulfilled all of their roster pieces and parts at that time. So Harry Redknapp played in a few games, and so did Bobby Howe, and then they finally got all their players to come in. But that was the big signing for Seattle in 1976 when Jeff Hurst came over. And Jeff Hurst, uh, obviously known for the hat trick in uh, the World Cup, I believe, in 1966. 
And that was another player. I'm like, I can't believe the Sounders have this Jeff Hurst character who is very famous and just got a lot of accolades coming over from England. And uh, here he is playing in Seattle in the kingdom. That was 1976. Um, and Jeff just stuck around for one year, actually didn't play that great as because they were paying him a lot of money and expecting more things out of him. But man, just to watch him play and just all the history there, that was incredible. And did you, were the Sounders in the community, were they, like, I, we talked about how you came to them. Did they go to you or did they ever go, were, were there clinics, were there appearances? How was that? in Because I know how it is now, but how was it in the 70s with the NASL? Yeah, Seattle did a great job. And I've heard a lot of stories about Portland doing the same. So Seattle would set up soccer camps and um, many soccer camps included uh, Tony Chersky and Adrian Webster and Dave Gillett. Uh, Bernie Fagan, um, all these players that were playing back for the Sounders back then uh, were very much out in the community. And then where I went to school growing up, uh, if there was an awards assembly, they would try and get a couple Sounders to come out and, you know, hand out awards and make an appearance. Uh, they would do clinics for a couple hours at night after high school uh, classes were over and adults got to come pick up their kids and partake in that. And then, like I said, the, the the day camps, the day soccer camps around the Seattle area, you you could pretty much read the newspaper. I know I'm dating myself, the newspaper back right. then, and you could see where these uh, camps were at. And, um, you know, a day camp back in those days would be $75 for the full week. And you got instruction from these great players that were in the NASL. And I, I partaked in a few of them every summer. And the big one back up in Seattle was – Northwest Soccer Camp, who Cliff McGrath oh, yeah. ran up there at Woodby Island. And a really quick uh, story on that was I went there as a kid two or three years. It's an overnight camp. And then years later, uh, Cliff asked me to come up and coach up at that camp. And I, I literally remember just how surreal it was when I was stepping out on the, those same fields up at Woodby Island, Fort Casey, and I'm coaching these kids who are my age now. Well, back then I was seven, eight, nine, ten. Here I'm coaching them at that, you know, younger age, and I'm like, "How is this possible?" But man, that was a blast. Yeah, and that's that's huge because, and we'll talk maybe a bit in a bit about the Fred Meyer soccer camps down here with Bernie Fagan and Clive Charles. Which, you know, when when the flyer showed up, the physical, you know, th trifold flyer showed up at Fred Meyer, um, it was on. You yeah. needed to get your registration, and because those filled up, but it's it amazed. It's just how important is it that uh, to build culture, to build tradition, that here you are, you're a second generation American soccer coach now, right? Going mm -hmm. there. And that came from specifically that one thing. And I've heard Mick Hoban say plenty of times, not just how much they did, but he likes to say, uh, you know, no, um, no roots, no fruit. And those, you were there when the roots were being planted and the fact that yes, you went back and, and brought it full circle. And I know now you have uh, a son who plays in college as well. Um, these these things are important, right? And this is why I yeah. like to talk about the NASL time. Yeah, one hundred percent. It was. I'm very thankful. I was around to really appreciate it and know it. And obviously, you know, time goes on, and then it folds in. 1984, I think, is is the farthest it got. And I know Portland may have uh, ejected around uh, 82. 82, and the Sounders in 83. So yeah, it was. God, I tell you, I still can remember the day when the Sounders folded up shop and. I it, emotionally, I mean, I don't know. I people say what they want to say. I'm just so much into the game and so passionate about it. It was that was a tough day to see that whole train stop immediately stop. And I, I just, I still couldn't believe. It. And I always wondered too if something would ever return in my lifetime. Well, they've built something, and I'm glad they did.
And the Seattle Sounders are going to celebrate the same with uh, San Jose and Vancouver, their 50th anniversary this year, which is um, yes. nothing to sneeze at in the Timbers next year. Yeah. So you played high school soccer, and then um, 1985, you play for a club called FC Seattle. Um, and that Western Alliance Challenge Series is what it was. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And I've got some notes and some follow-ups I want to ask about, but um, going from Blanchett High School to play uh, play for FC Seattle, can you talk about what that league was? Yeah, I'd love to. I it was it was a league that honestly was very small, very tiny. A lot of people may not know about it, but the way that they kind of built it and structured it was great. And I'll get into some detail. So eighty four uh, stops. I, I'm done with high school soccer. I loved it. Played four years varsity up at Blanchett, and then um, I was has a had a roommate. His name is Jim Neighbors, and he uh, was a goalkeeper and ended up going to Seattle Pacific. He played four years varsity for Shorecrest High School. We were roommates. And Jim, from a talent level, was a little higher level than myself. But he and I being roommates, he said, hey, are you going to go to the tryouts tomorrow? And I I distinctively remember saying, Jim, what tryouts are you talking about? He goes, FC Seattle, new club. They're building it the right way. They're going to have a pro team, and they're going to have a bunch of city league teams that will feed into the pro team. So you're looking at a professional baseball team with AAA, AA, and maybe single-A teams going on. So I'm like, yeah, definitely. I'll go try out. So Lo and behold, Cliff McGrath is running the Seattle version of FC Seattle. So FC Seattle was a lot of the higher-ups that were playing for the NASL Sounders who were now going to coach, the, let's call it the pro team, the, 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 high, the top dog pro team. But under FC Seattle, they had all the city league teams. So there was a team from Seattle. There was a team from Renton, one from Everett, one from uh, Tacoma. I mean, all the major cities around the Seattle area, every team had a, a every little city had a team. So they told us that if you guys want to travel for the pro team and you make the pro team and you draw a contract, your college eligibility eligibility is gone. And I remember hearing that statement and I thought, okay, well, I still want to play college soccer. I don't think I'm good enough to make the top dog pro team, but I'm in, I'm in this thing. And so Cliff uh, McGrath was the coach of the City League Seattle uh, team, and that's the team I made. But it's amazing because the roster that you know had players that I played alongside with, they definitely started playing at the top pro team and or later on got into MLS like a Peter Hattrup. Um, and uh, Jeff Cook was the goalkeeper. Uh, and we, our city league team was stacked, but some of the players just held back either from a talent standpoint like myself or they didn't want to give up the college eligibility. So I played for that team for one year. Um, we traveled all around to these city teams and uh, we were taking care of like professional players with no contract, no money coming our way, but everything was taken care of from a fielding standpoint, from uh, the fees to play in there that was paid for uh, uniforms given to us, all the gear, uh, somebody else did our laundry. So I'm feeling like maybe I'm getting to a point here where I have half a chance. Somebody's doing my laundry uh, for his soccer. You know, maybe I've got a chance. But uh, that was, I would say, my peak for getting to a professional level. It didn't quite go any further than that. But that helped me get into Shoreline Community College on a full ride scholarship. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's that year, that same year in the fall of 85. Yeah. And I want to talk about that in a second, but I want to hold off and talk about this SC Seattle just a little bit more because yeah. um, another uh, alumni from there, uh, sorry, alumnus, uh, Brian Smetzer. 
played for SC mm-hmm. Seattle in 1985, the current Sounders coach. Um, among others, Chris Dangerfield, former Timber, was playing in San Jose. And this yep. is, you, you mentioned that timeline, 82 Portland folds, 84 Seattle folds. I'm sorry, 83, 84, the NASL folds. And now we're talking about 1985. And I think it's really important um, that year because you have people who came over here to, to play and to have opportunity, but build the game as well. And when the NASL wasn't there for them, they were still there for us and they were still building the game. And all these things you're talking about, this like five or six team Western Alliance League that's meant to be a scaffold up, you know, a path to the pros if it were 2024. That's there because they, you know, they're, they're going to stay here and build the game. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah. Real quick for me on, on that league too, that the pro team, they play Memorial stadium and they draw a crowd. We play uh, at Memorial stadium too. There was really no crowd coming to our city league games, but they still promoted them. Uh, I think if people came, they, they were charged an admission, they would come in um, we played each team twice. And so we got a fair amount of games and then the top two teams ended up doing like a championship game at the end of the year. Our Seattle team, unfortunately, didn't get into that final. But um, I just I, I was really happy with the way it was structured. I was happy I was even given a chance and a tryout and kind of made it to, you know, the AAA level, I guess you'd say. And um, when I, um, you know, look around at some of those players, Chris Henderson, actually, the side story with Chris Henderson was I literally think he was still in high school, junior or senior, maybe in high school. And Chris Henderson, who's MLS uh, standout and now is with uh, Inner Miami with uh, Messi and everybody down there. Uh, Chris Henderson played in that league and he was uh, 15 or 16, maybe 17 years old. He was the, one of the best players out there and we're playing against him. And, you you, you know, the kids will develop at different age, you know, uh, different uh, physiques and Chris was a very slender thin guy to begin with fast as heck and had a great left foot knew the game really well and he was playing in our city league because he couldn't sign a contract in high school number one and um, when he did finish up high school I think he might have gone straight into the pro FC Seattle team and there's a guy by the name of Clint Carnell and uh, Jason Waiters and these other guys that uh, some played at Duke and some of them played over in North Carolina. And um, it, there was just a wide range of talent in that little, I'll call it the little Seattle league. And um, the FC Seattle team would tra- travel to San Jose, the pro team, the top dog team. They would go up to uh, Vancouver and play the 86ers before they, you know, they were called the Whitecaps and it turned to 86ers, then went back to the Whitecaps and, um, it's like an alphabet soup of everything, but I lived during that time. I lived it and I, it was a great memory. I was very fortunate to be in that, you know, that whole time period, I think. And so uh, we mentioned uh, shoreline community college, Northwest athletic association of community colleges, mm-hmm. first team player in 1985. How did you end up at shoreline? And um, you know, I'm going to talk to another player later, Mark Baina from the 2001 Portland Timbers a league all-time leading goal scorer also went to community college and that is a potential path, even though we're talking 1985. So we're about 40 years ago. Sorry to say that. Uh, yeah, not- <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, talk about that opportunity, how that came about. And then how did, can you take us from there eventually to Warner Pacific because that was your next stop? Yeah. So um, FC Seattle ended uh, that season. There was no uh, promise for next year, which would have been, 86 and I thought I need to get back into school and I want to get my education 
And I lived in that, I lived 20 minutes away from uh, Shoreline Community College. And I thought, all right, I'm going to enroll in school. And that was the springtime and Shoreline Community Colleges, would, uh, Community College and the other community colleges would play in the fall. So I got hooked up with an intramural team, Billy, of all things. And I was playing indoor, basically on a, a basketball court at the college, small goals. It's almost like a futsal scenario these days. And I played in there and I had no idea the, the varsity coach for Shoreline Community College was in there, had taken a peek at these players that were playing intramural. And he approached me right after and he says, we're who are you and where have you been and what are you doing for soccer? So, well, I'm enrolled here and um, I'm going to be in the fall. I'm going to be coming back. I, I'm looking to get my education. I need to get my two-year degree, maybe to go on a four-year uh, education and maybe a college soccer scenario at that time. And uh, we went right down to his office and he offered me a full ride basically on the spot there. So my next two years at Shoreline Community College were great. I really enjoyed it. And um, I literally walked into a futsal game and walked out with uh, my tuition being paid for the next couple of years. And uh, two years at Shoreline Community College, we played against Bellevue Community College. They were very good at the time. Um, in fact, side story is Bernie Fagan coached at Bellevue Community College before. Um, I'm not even sure which year I, you know, and I knew Bernie had played for the Timbers and the Sounders back in the old NASL days. And Bernie had a short stint before he moved back down to Portland up at Bellevue Community College. And there were some other big names in that league too. Um, and um, I enjoyed two years playing there. Um, the level of soccer and the fields we played on, I wouldn't say were the highest ever, but um, it was a good stepping stone for me. Who was the coach that you had at Shoreline? It was a gentleman by the name of Laurel Pizzuto. And I think Laurel was hired by Shoreline Community College that same year I came in there. And I don't know, it's really unfortunate because I didn't get to know him too well. I don't know much of his history. So I'm not even sure if he had just transplanted from another place uh, in the United States to coach there. I And I've never had touch with him since I left this college in 1986. But I'm glad he was where he was at that day. And it, the timing was great. And I enjoyed playing for him. You know, I can't tell you how many players I talk to and, and their origin story or their opportunity story goes something like that. I'm just out doing the thing I love. I'm just honestly playing and someone's there to see someone else or someone just happens to be there and they notice. Um, yeah. And, and the rest is it. So, okay. So shoreline, you, you played at shoreline and then what were you, what was your major there? I'm curious. So it's just a uh, two year. Uh, I think they called it like um, um, AA associate in arts and sciences. And, and again, uh, when when he when he offered me the scholarship and I thought, all right, I can I can parlay this into a lot more down the road. I had my school paid for for two years. I just wanted to get my all my general undergraduate requirements done. And I did got the degree. And then um, now I'm wide open. And this was kind of my grand plan. Now I'm wide open to start looking around a four year school to not only get my and I, I was a business major and I just wanted to play soccer in college, maybe run a scholarship opportunity and keep playing and get my uh, business degree. So that was kind of leaving Shoreline in 1986. That was kind of the the main focus for me right there. And how did that happen? How did you get to, how did you meet Bernie Fagan? How did you get to Warner Pacific? Yeah, great question. This is where it really got good for me. Um, so my second year in 1986 was Shoreline. I was selected to the all-star team again. 
And the community college did a nice job of doing an all-star game. So the uh, East played the West or the North played the South. I can't remember the format, but I got chosen for the soccer uh, all-star team for Shoreline or for the community college league. And it's a kind of an interesting story, Billy, because I went into that last all-star game. It was my second year. I didn't have a lot of sniffs from four-year schools at the time. I was literally thinking maybe I could reconvene uh, with Cliff McGrath over Seattle Pacific. At that time, they were loaded. Division two team. My gosh, you you had to be outstanding to get a ch chance to play for them. But it, it was still maybe a side dream. But then um, when I played in that all-star game, I um, I literally thought to myself mentally, I'm just going to go have fun. I, I don't even know how this game will end up. I just want to go out and enjoy it. And I was playing around with the ball probably more than I ever should have, but I was probably doing a couple things here and there on the field that were kind of selfish, um, just juggling the ball or flicking it over people's heads and dribbling. And I, I literally was just trying to end my, uh, what I thought maybe was the end of my uh, competitive career, just on my own terms, just wanted to go out and enjoy it to the fullest. And a couple weeks after that game, I got a phone call from Bernie down in Portland and he said, Hey, I was at your, uh, soccer game, the all-star game up to community colleges. And Bernie was very notorious for looking at community college players that I didn't know at the time. And um, so Smart. Bernie and I had a good conversation and he said, I need you to come down in two weeks. I want you to uh, try out for Warner Pacific. And I knew at the time I'd already heard of them. Brent Goulet was down there. Grant Gibbs was down there. Danny House, Dale Mulholland, Tony Hicker, Todd Strobeck. I mean, this team was stacked too. And I knew, you know, they're in Portland, but I never thought I'd get anybody from a Warner Pacific style and size of a college looking at me to come down to Warner Pacific and play. And that was Bernie's phone call to me. And um, as we'll get into later, Bernie and I became very close and very good friends over all these years. And he's the number one reason I'm talking to you in Portland. I would have never met you. I'd still be in Seattle if it weren't for Bernie playing or talking to somebody else up there. Um but that's how I got down to Warner. Um, I came down on a tryout. Uh, we immediately immediately played against uh, the FC FC Portland team down here. They were stacked. That was with Brent Goulet and Danny House and Tony Hicker and Grant Gibbs and Strobeck and that whole group. And then the day after that, we played at University of Portland, and that was full of players. Greg Moss was in the goals for them. Joey Holloway, Rob Sakamoto, Wade Weber, Jimmy Weber, Rob Bartz. I mean, this team was stacked. Joey Leonetti, I think, came in the year later. But I mean, every which way you turned at the FC Portland team and the University of Portland team. And Clive Charles obviously was on board and had that train rolling at University of Portland. Um, that's where my tryout started with Bernie and had a had a good showing, decent enough that he called me a couple weeks later and gave me an offer. And then the rest is history for me coming down to Warner Pacific. So, Rob, a couple of things there, I think, for context for people listening. I also want to say this. In 1988, 1986, to, or I guess 1988 to, to maybe 1990, there was a period of time where um, Warner Pacific, University of Washington, University of Portland, these teams were in a conference together or at a similar level they played. And yes. here in Portland, it did not get better than the Warner Pacific, University of Portland game, the Louisiana um, Pacific game. And yeah. that was, and the people you just are naming, Casey Keller played in that matchup. And that yeah. was, that was the um, apex of college soccer. And it was really that next level pro. Uh, and a lot of people, what would happen is in the summers, because it's college, because you can only have a certain amount of players on a team, 
there'd be a handful of guys from Warner Pacific and a handful of guys from University of Portland playing for teams like the FC Portland, the FC Seattle in whatever regional yeah. league they had. Right. And so this is, it's not just Warner because Warner Pacific now is NAI, I believe mm-hmm. uh, yes. University of Portland's division one, et cetera. Um, but it was, it was a really big deal. And that's what it was. I mean, if you're playing in a, if you're coming down to try out, you can't really find yourself in a bigger game in the Northwest unless maybe, you know, Seattle Pacific's playing Simon Fraser. Yeah. Yeah. When I um, got into Warner Pacific, um, like you said, we were NAIA. And this is the amazing part of the story to me. Um, and then we had the George Foxes, the Concordias, the Lewis and Clarks um, and Willamettes. And they were good teams. But then within our division, Billy, we also had Seattle Pacific, Division Two powerhouse. We also played against University of Washington in Division One. Uh, we also played against uh, Simon Fraser, which were NAIA, but they were top-notch team so and university of portland was division one so i it blows me away to think back and the parity between the naia teams back then division two and division one it was incredible uh you could field a good naia team at warner or even simon fraser and you could compete with uw you can compete against university of portland seattle pacific i don't even know i don't follow it enough today but to play a division one team uh, if you're an NAIA team, I don't know if the parity was as close as it was back then. And hopefully it is. I'm not trying to, you know, discount anything that's going on right now. But back then, it, it, Bernie used to always tell us, Bernie would say, we have an enrollment at Warner Pacific of 600 students. And now we're playing University of Washington, 36,000 students. We played at Husky Stadium uh, up in Seattle when we played UW. And then we would play uh, at Civic Stadium for our games down here. But our practice field was 92nd and Cooper next to, uh, I don't know, some grade school in Southeast Portland. We were training there. And, you know, two days later after a training session, we'd be up playing, you know, in Seattle at Husky Stadium. And I always tell this story. I said, when we played at University of Washington, uh, it held 67,000 people. There were eight people at the game and seven of them were ushers. There was just nobody there. But it was it was a thrill to play up in that stadium, and that program was locked and loaded too. I believe when we played him, a guy by the name of Ron Carter was their coach, or it could have been Dean Wurzberger, but uh, it's been a few years. But anyway, they 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 were rocks. That team was loaded too. And then we're also talking about an, an ecosystem. That's a word I like to use a lot on the podcast, where you know we mentioned the NASL's gone in 1984, and a lot of the people we're talking about as coaches were from that, and they're building and they're competing which is good but they're also building opportunities for players outside and sharing players or sharing coaches as needed all the way you know up and down interstate five in the northwest yeah Um, especially with the summer the summer stuff they had you know doing camps and then getting getting you know games and whatever the league is whether it's the western alliance challenge western soccer alliance or what have you yeah so um all right warner pacific i've got it you played with some i mentioned some people you played with before but you know, earlier from your own website, I've, I've put um, from your YouTube, I've, you know, I put some of the Portland pride games up on the website and there's Dick McCormick. There's Auth Nong McThong. Nong McThong. Yep. I'm sorry, I mispronounced his name. Uh, you know, Rob Bartz. Uh, these are guys that you were playing against and playing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, our, our Warner Pacific team, Dick McCormick came up from, or came down to uh, Warner Pacific. Bernie recruited him from Seattle himself. So we, Dick, he and I never played against each other because the age difference in Seattle per se, but he came in uh, when I was a junior at Warner and Dickie was the freshman 
And um, he immediately, Bernie, with perfect reason, uh, tabbed him as the team captain. Um, Dickie was a great player. He played a lot with Tacoma Stars and the MISL. He had many years with that. Um, if he was any, you know, younger, he probably would have played in the NSL. And I'm sure if he was a little bit, I don't know how the, the age would have worked necessarily with the MLS because Dickie was getting too old when the MLS really got going, I think. But Dickie was that kind of player. He was definitely a professional. Um, Todd Strobeck was our goalkeeper at Warner Pacific. He was a four-year uh, player I think out of sunset um i believe no centennial maybe uh, in southeast uh portland anyway uh, you know i'm playing against these guys or, or on the same team as these guys at warner pacific and i feel like i fit in but there was some great talent at um <laughs> really good story with him was bernie recruited him from uh hawaii and his brother too also came up from Hawaii. But there's a little um, side story that a lot of people don't know about. Ott actually went to Portland State University as a wide receiver out of high school and was playing at Portland State or doing a you know a spring league tryout. And he must have been up here for when Pokey Allen was involved with Portland State way back in the day. And here's Ott, a great athlete, by the way, as we all know. And um, somebody some way somehow said to Ott, because uh, they knew he played soccer a little bit, said, go talk to Bernie over at Warner Pacific, or Bernie found him. And then Ott basically quit playing uh, Portland State uh, football and joined in with Warner Pacific, and immediately was a central defender, if not a center midfielder, and played professionally for the Portland Pride. And he and Dick McCormick were two great players uh, from Warner Pacific that had an impact at, uh, for Portland. And I'm sure, Billy, you played with Ott, um, you know, when you were at the Pythons, because I think Ott probably was still involved. I mean, just some great, great players. And Bernie just had, I, I, I always refer to him as the greatest salesperson ever in Portland for soccer, maybe next to Clive Charles. I don't know how he got all these players to come in and play at Warner Pacific, but he did. And th that program was incredible at that time. Yeah, so um, Ott, when Ott tore his ACL in 1998, I was um, I was his understudy. Okay. So that's that's why I found the field was because Ott got hurt, and that was I think it for his playing yeah. uh, days. And it was that same year. Remember, Brett Phillips uh, broke his leg, and Nick Vorberg got yeah, his Nick opportunity stepped, as well. Yeah. yeah. Yep, for sure. And so I, I do want to talk about Bernie. It's kind of funny you mentioned Dick McCormick and. Um, Monty Hawkins was uh, Dick and Monty Hawkins were coaching soccer at um, when I was a freshman in high school at our school. And, you know, Dick was coaching because I, there was some, I don't know, but he, <laughs> there were some eligibility issues. And so he was coaching, but then the MISL came calling. And so he yeah. got an opportunity to go play in Ohio, I think. Well, uh, something happened with Monty as well in the same way. So Monty took over for, for Dick uh, at my high school, which was kind of, um, another tie to birdie because you know they were both at Warner pacific at the time yep yeah monty played for us uh I, I believe one year and that was the first year i got there 87 and monty was uh a good midfielder and i had forgotten to bring him up too he he played in the midfield and um that's interesting you brought that story about dick because yeah dick went to canton and played in the npsl and NPSL. i think that was you're you're totally right billy i think that was uh dickie's um kind of jump to really what got him started in that MPSL. And then he obviously played MISL with Tacoma Stars and Portland Pride. Uh, he, he was up in Seattle with the Sea Dogs in that same CISL right. league that Pride were in. 
So yeah, that's it. I've never heard that story. That's where Dickie probably got his vault into uh, the professional indoors seasons right there. Yeah. We'll have to track him down as well. Yeah. Oh, great guy. Yeah. So let's, speaking of great guys, let's talk a minute about Bernie Fagan. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can still, I, I worked his soccer camps um, when he was at Portland state um, a couple summers and I can, I can just, he's the type of guy where I can still hear how he said my name and I'll never not, I can't say it that way because I just, I'm not him, but there's right. just, you know, once you met Bernie, you met Bernie, you know, Bernie. Um, and that's the thing that sticks with me. Um, but you, you spent a lot of time with him. What, what still sits with you uh, now when you think of Bernie Fagan and the things he did, not just for soccer, not just for Warner Pacific, um, but also uh, for you? Yeah, I think where I really start with Bernie, number one is the phone call. He brought me down to Portland by himself. He, he and again, I'm not this uh, professional who had a long lasting professional career, but I look at my, uh, my scope, my life. And I think eh, so much had to do with Bernie. So, so yeah, Bernie brought me down. So that was great. Number one, then number two, I still, to this day, like I referred to just a little bit ago, I'm amazed, uh, Warner Pacific, a very small college NAIA in Southeast division street in Southeast Portland, 500 student enrollment, 20 of those 500 were always soccer players, if not a few more, but Bernie got people to come in and play at the small college level, but made a, that team was incredible for a lot of years. And Brent Goulet, who we haven't really talked about too much, um, was an outstanding uh, Olympics player. Brent Goulet played on the national team. Brent played in the MISL with the Tacoma Stars and probably a few other teams. Brent, you can, you know, just look up his history the the by far by bar none the the best player that ever played at Warner Pacific and I was glad to even be at the same school but what I'm driving at here is Bernie had a knack Bernie this is what I really appreciated about the guy um he could sell ice to Eskimos he knew what he was doing when he brought people into the campus and talked up the school and talked up the program and he was always interested in the the big term goal and the big term goal was get your degree take advantage of this opportunity and have fun playing soccer with it. And um, Bernie and I, I played for him. I was his, you know, a, a player of his and we were, we were always friendly and cordial, but where Bernie and I got really close, I would say, you know, in the last uh, eight to 10 years was my son, Ian uh, played for Northwest uh, Christian university NCU. Now it's called Bushnell, I believe down in Eugene. And, uh, I was very happy to see Warner Pacific was on my son Ian's soccer schedule when Ian was playing for that uh, college team. And I would go watch my son play uh, at Warner Pacific against them. And we were it was a road game for the team from Eugene to play in Portland. And of course, Bernie's finishing up his uh, coaching career around that same time. And Bernie and I talked after the game and I was just, I told Bernie, I said, you know, thank you so much for bringing me to Portland. My life has been very, very good down here. I've been very happy with everything. Think every which way that my world has turned out um, and I get to watch my son play college soccer against my former coach. I mean, it, it doesn't get much better. And Bernie said some really nice things and we had a good conversation and I walked away from there and Bernie and I were in touch ever since that time. And then the Warner Pacific alumni games would roll around and we'd been doing those for many years. And Bernie and I would always find a way to get caught up. Uh, share a couple pints after the game. And um, 
you know, got to know Susie, which is Bernie's wife, really well. Um, and then I uh, started seeing Ross and Sarah and Ian, and those are Bernie's kids. And I just felt like I just felt like they were part of the family. I was part of the family, great family, great people to be around. And um, it just got to this point where I just felt like I have so much to pay back to this guy in terms of making my life really what it was for bringing me down to Portland. And I got my business degree and I ended up doing a lot of different things with soccer and then I, my professional career with where I work. And um, I just had always a special place in my heart for Bernie because he took a chance on me and it was a small chance. And um, I felt like I had a great soccer career with him. And more than that, my life was really Um, what I can really appreciate about my life now is what I have here in Portland is because of him. And I never moved back up to Seattle. My whole family lives up there. I keep in touch with them. I miss the city, but Portland is my home. And um, there's just so many good things that Bernie brought, not just to me. And I'm being selfish because it's kind of about me right now on this podcast. Absolutely. And thanks for having me on. But there are so many people that he has touched in the state of Oregon uh, the city of Portland. I did special Olympics camps with him that gave me a whole nother level of appreciation for Bernie. He was very involved with special Olympics. He coached and he coached and he coached and he made huge impressions on so many people. And I literally towards the last part of his life, I would say the last five to six years, um, made it a point with Jerome Lachance and Glenn Rogers, who I played college soccer with us three guys would make sure we met up with Bernie once or twice a year at the least and go to lunch with him and go hang out with him and be present for him. And, um, during Bernie's memorial service, uh, a couple weeks back, um, when Susie called us three guys out, Jerome Glenn and myself mm -hmm. as a thankful gesture at the ceremony that made the, it made my day. It made me really appreciate the sacrifice, um, that he made for so many people and so much time and so much energy that he put into this game. I was a part of that. And then I got to see it from a different angle, feeling like I was part of his family. Uh, and for, for Susie, his wife to basically recognize us three guys um, it's the least we could have done. We're going to miss him. He was uh, a very important part of my life. I know he was with Jerome and Glenn too. Um, and Glenn gave a nice speech during the uh, funeral service there at the at the church at the Madeline Parish. Um, Bernie did a, a lot for this community, and I can't thank him enough. And uh, it's 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 very sad um, he's not here with us. I still have a tough time believing he's not here, um, but the memories are incredible, Billy. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk about about Bernie and his family and uh, your teammates it this yeah. is this is we talked before we started recording this is the heart of this whole project is to you know soccer's been good to us um it's been really good to me because it's brought me people um and you know it's it's about saying thank you yeah 100 percent really so how, how did you go that okay so born in Pacific you're playing there you end up coaching at Mountain View with John Bain Right. And so mm -hmm. you're, you're getting exposure to John Bain, Bernie Fagan, not too bad. Right. Yeah. And so you, you coach, uh, you're at Mountain View after you've graduated. Um, what do you, what was your experience like coaching high school soccer, coaching with John? Um, and then 
what do you take now from the time you've spent, um, you know, around the game with, with John and Bernie? Uh, and just what was, I want you to talk through Mountain View and then you can segue that if you want into how John got you into the Portland Pride. Yeah. Yeah. And 100% right. So um, I was basically at an area where, you know, I was, I, I loved to coach, I uh, loved to be around it. And I like to play still because I wasn't that old at the time. It's probably mid twenties. Uh, can't remember the exact year, but um, I got asked to coach at Mountain View High School in Vancouver. That's where I was living, Vancouver, Washington. And there was another gentleman that was coaching the team. He was having some struggles uh, with, you know, just the the high school uh, kids, I guess. Uh, and he had the he had the men's and women's programs at Mountain View, mm-hmm. and um, they asked me to come in and be an assistant coach for both sides, uh, the, the women and the men. And, um, so I get a phone call by the athletic director at Mountain View high school and saying, uh, the other coach that was here with you, Rob, he's resigned. And this is mid season, by the way, uh, for the women's program. And they asked me to step in and be the varsity coach immediately for the women's team. And I said, yes, for sure. I'm invested in this. I was enjoying coaching at this time. And so I took over the, the women's varsity and finished out the year with them. They uh, played in the fall or the spring. God, it's been so many years. Yeah. So here's, they, I'll add some context here, real quick. In yeah. so Vancouver is just over the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon. So we're talking Oregon, Washington. In Washington, yeah. boys play in the spring. Girls play in the spring, fall. You're right. In Oregon, yeah. boys play in the fall as do girls high school soccer there you go thank so you that's for, how the state yeah and so yeah. a lot of people do both or a lot of you could conceivably coach uh, a boys team high school in both and not overlap your seasons and that's exactly what it was thanks for reminding me yeah. so um yeah coached with the uh, girls in the fall and then uh now we have this is what's crazy and this is the great story for john bain um now there's a head coach opening uh for the varsity for the boys in the spring in the state of washington as you say and um, I remember talking to the athletic director and he told me, he goes, do you know a guy by the name of John Bain? And I said, I don't know him personally right now, but I know exactly who you're talking about. And I'm like, how did you guys finagle that? I mean, John Bain, great player in the NASL indoors. Uh, and I've heard so many good things about his personality at that time, but really didn't know him personally. And they said, well, he's signed a, 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 a contract, if you will, uh, to coach the high school and uh, we'd like you to be the JV coach. And I said, I am all in. You don't have to ask me twice. And so um, it was a great privilege of mine because the athletic director knew I had a, a tiny bit of tenure at the school, a year or two, whatever that amount was. And he said, hey, Rob, I don't know John really well. His name is Doug Cook, the athletic director. But he goes, I want you to introduce John Bain to the players. And I said, yeah, I'll be more than happy to, because I knew enough about John because I loved the uh, old NASL, and I, I knew enough about John's record as a player. He also played um, for the Sounders this season. In the Sounders, yeah, in 83, right. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, I'd be more than happy to. So uh, I, I'll never forget this moment. It's tryouts at any high school. There's 40 to 50 kids. You're going to have 18 on your JV, 18 on your varsity. Some players will probably get cut. And so we, let's just say 50 high school kids and they're all in a circle and they're waiting, you know, for the training to get started. And I said, Hey guys. And a lot of them knew me. Cause again, I was there just for a year, year and a half. And um, I said, I've got some great news here. I want to introduce uh, your guys uh, varsity coach for the program. And 
John walks forward and uh, some of our varsity players, they knew what was going on and they knew John Bain's face and, and or knew him from playing for these clubs around Portland. And the look on some of these high school players was amazing. Can you imagine you're a junior or senior, you're closing out your high school career and you're like, this is going to be our coach. And I don't know, I was thrilled to be coaching alongside him as a JV coach. And so John immediately took over the program and, um, I'll tell you what, I still was young enough. I was getting in these training sessions. I wanted to start kicking the ball around with these high school players, hearing what John had to say. John would knock the ball around a bit too. And um, that became a great, great experience. And I obviously over the next three years, I believe John was there, two to three years. I can't remember the exact number. It might've been um, up till 1993 when the pride started, obviously, but I got to know John pretty well and the utmost respect for him. He treated those kids like they were the top shelf players of all time. That gave everybody a lot of confidence. He had some great players to work with too. Um, I had a great JV team that I got to coach. Um, that was a great program. And I can tell you right now, Billy, there was three state championships that were won. John at least had the first one. That might have been 92. And when 93 rolled around, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Brooks, yeah. who knew John Bain really well from years and years ago, um, Jeff took over the program and kept that program at a very high level. And all of a sudden, we had this program. I'll never forget this. We go up to Seattle for playoff games, Billy. And I'm from Seattle. And I knew these coaches we were coaching against at Newport High School, at Cascade High School in Everett. You could name all these different high schools. And I knew a lot of these coaches. And they're like, what are you doing here? And I go, well, I'm actually living in Vancouver. And I'm coaching uh, JV. So the assistant coach, I guess you would say, for Mountain View. And they didn't know much about the Vancouver high school team, Mountain View High School, very southwest Washington area. And all the teams up in Seattle knew of the Seattle teams and Tacoma teams. They had no clue about us. And we were thumping teams up there. And we go up in playoffs and we beat these teams it was a very gratifying feeling. And I just look over at John Bain and John knew the track record with Seattle and Portland and all the rivalries and everything. And we come back on the bus after, you know, uh, playing a game, winning a big game in playoffs. And we'd have a two or three, you know, hour bus ride home. And he knew all those coaches too, for the most part. And I would say, doesn't this feel good? We're, we're putting Vancouver on the map and we won three state championships, Jeff Brooks included in a row. And that's hard to find in any uh, high school for any sport. Yeah. I love hearing Ben Huang talk about those days uh, yeah. as a player at Mountain View because he, he it was the same thing. Like people were like, who are these guys? How'd they even yeah. get here? Oh. Yeah. Ben Hong's a great example. Ben Hong's a great player. He, I think made varsity as a freshman. Mm -hmm. He sits in the middle of the park center midfielder, one of the best in the business. And uh, same thing. I, I could have a conversation with him like you and just we we shake our heads and say no one knew what they were getting into when they played Mountain View High School back in those days. It was great. And so uh, real quick about Bainey in his episode, he talked about, um, you know, coaching high school and how, you know, even when things weren't great, he got so much pride out of, you know, making good moments, making players better. And those things meant as much. And for someone to have the career he had and, and have that feeling about mm -hmm. coaching, you're around some really good mentors. Uh, you, you know, like I said, we've had it lucky. We've had it. We've had it good. Um, so how does Bainey take you to the Portland Pride? And that's where I want to sort of go to the indoors next. OK, yeah, perfect. Um, love to get into that. This big five years of my history um, in soccer. Um, so, again, Jeff Brooks and I were um, coaching. Now, Jeff's the varsity 
coach. I'm the JV coach at the Mountain View High School. Uh, we'd won one or two state championships since then. So we were doing well. And Bainey uh, was really close with Jeff. And John goes, hey, listen, guys, if you're interested, uh, the Portland Pride's going to start up. There's an upstart team in the CISL, Continental Indoor Soccer League. And John Bain literally said, hey, if nothing else, can you guys come out and help us on game days? And we kind of want you guys to help just be managers, help the players out, take care of equipment, whatever, just to, so Bainey wouldn't have to. And Jeff and I were like, by all means, we're in. We're, whatever you want us to do, we'll help. And so Jeff and I uh, went through and we met with the front office of the Portland Pride in 1993. Brian Parrott was the owner at the time. And um, he had a pretty good staff going. And then Bainey uh, started up his soccer camps through the Portland Pride at that time and asked Jeff and I to basically manage the camps too, because John would be traveling with the team, totally understood. We were all in for the camps and we were all in for the game days with the Portland Pride. And um, so I got so involved with the game, day-to-day -day operations with the games uh, at now the Memorial Coliseum. See him, and then it switched over to the Moda Center, which at the time was called the Rose Garden. And um, if John was ever short on players for a reserve game or just to step in for practice, Jeff Brooks and I, we were playing still men's league and we were in, we were fit enough. We could step in and play and kind of step in. And I love that because it's not like I could make the team, but I could hold my own. Jeff could too in these pickup games and or reserve games. And so John gave us a couple, you know, uh, danglers out there too to just playing some somewhat high profile games for reserve games. And we took full advantage of it. And um, we were always there for game days. Jeff and I would literally be the first two in there would be the last two out of the Coliseum or the Rose Garden at night, helping, you know, basically um, button everything up after the games down there, make sure everything was secured for all the Portland Pride gear and all this. And Jeff and I, by the way, at this point, we're not on payroll at all. We might be getting a hundred bucks from uh, in cash from somebody from the team or Bainey would give us, I don't know, even remember, I can't remember that far back, but maybe a hundred bucks a night. And for me, and I'm sure Jeff would probably say the same, it was worth it. We were, um, I think, respected by the players. I think the players knew that we, we were coaching, we could play, we wanted to help. We were there to do whatever we could to help the Portland Pride out. And that was a great experience uh, for those first two years. Yeah. So, Rob, I'm thinking back to when you talked about first being exposed to the Seattle Sounders. And we mentioned something about how exposure is so important when you're building the game, when you're building people, getting that first taste of professional and seeing, you know, seeing this is something I could do. This is a thing. When I uh, talked to John, he talked about even in those days with the Western soccer alliance or league or challenge right whatever iteration it was when he was coaching he was the one washing the uniforms right coaches were doing that kind of stuff because the money was yeah. so tight and to hear even just the fact that you and jeff took something off his plate right because that was all, all that building was about how do we build the game how do we give a professional experience to the players we have and to know that mm -hmm. that is now off his plate because you know you and jeff are doing it and you're doing it for nothing Right. Yeah. Um, that's a huge contribution. Yeah. And I no regrets and no, no misgivings about it. Um, yeah. I think. And when John would say, Hey, listen, we're out of town, we're traveling on three game road trip. We need you guys to get the soccer camp started at cook park on a Monday. And it's a day camp through Friday. And Jeff and I would get out there, soccer balls pumped up 25, 30 balls and yeah. get the t-shirts out for all the kids we took care of the registration. We make sure Bainey got all the 
the uh, the income, the cash, and John, I think, kept a portion. Maybe some of it went to the club. Um, uh, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Billy. We were trying at that point, and that league was upstart in 1993, the CISL. We literally were doing everything and anything we could to help foster the Portland Pride, you know, professional indoor team. And I got to tell you something at the very beginning, it, for me, I don't know so much for Jeff, but it was intimidating because a lot of these players that were on the team at the time, whether they're from University of Portland or even my teammates from Warner Pacific were playing on this team. And it was kind of like, God, what am I doing? I kind of feel like, um, I don't know, I, I'm helping doing A, B and C and I want to play. I'm not good enough to play, but it was at the beginning, it was kind of a weird position to be in. Um, but then literally within a couple of weeks of them getting to know the commitment Jeff and I were giving and what we were trying to help. And we were there for John Bain. Uh, we were, I wanted to help John Bain out first and foremost. He gave me so much uh, from a coaching standpoint and coaching alongside him at Mountain View, you know, and then as, as the weeks went on, the players started appreciating Jeff and I think even more. And then now, now it's like we can get into some reserve matches. We can hold our own, our own out in the field and, I felt like that, you know, kind of tight and a kind of a bumpy road at the beginning, just because they're like, what are you doing here? How do you fit into all this? And they figured it out pretty quickly. And Jeff and I were in our lane. We weren't trying to do anything we, we couldn't accomplish. And um, uh, like I said, I was there so much for John Bain. Yeah. And, you know, Rob, I got to say, hold on. You've got to make it. I've got one more year until I can play over 50 with you. And uh, yes. I look forward to being I'm your teammate playing. again. Because that's what I'm getting from you, though, is the sense of how, you know, I mean, even just I think there are people, even if John Bain walks through the door and you're the, you know, former varsity coach or interim coach, even I think there are still people that wouldn't be able to check their ego for whatever reason. Um, and this is a pattern I'm seeing is you're putting other people in their success first for the good of the other person, for the good of the game. And I appreciate that. And kind of as an, an illustration of that, because I've heard you talk about this before. Can you just walk me through a game day? Portland Pride are playing Memorial Coliseum. Yeah. What's a game day like for you? It, it is kind of amazing. When I did this other podcast that you and I have talked about, um, I, Good I went still through available, one, right? two. Good seat's still available, yep. yeah. And um, I still, I, I'm kind of just goofy like this. I still have a file of a lot of my Portland Pride notes, and they're more like just nostalgia things. And one of them was a full game day operations checklist, and Jeff and I uh, would – you know, split duties, but Jeff and I would show up and we would basically, Billy, we get to the Memorial Coliseum at say 9 a.m. and the Dallas sidekicks would be our opponent. They would have the first training session that morning for one hour with Gordon Jago, their coach, and they'd roll in all their players, Tattoo and David Doyle and, uh, you know, all their top shelf players. They had a solid team. Anyway, we would open up the doors with an usher or two from the Coliseum and they would go train for 45 minutes, light training the morning of the game. And then uh Portland pride team would roll in. They do the exact same thing, say at 10 AM. And uh, Jeff and I would make sure lockers were open, you know, water's available, uh, any other concessions that they may need and whatnot. The, then that, their training session would end. We talked to Bainey for a little while because if John had special requests about anything for the evening, for the game, or just what was going on, we'd catch up with Bainey. We had a good relationship with him, obviously. And then the teams would depart and then be, say, noon by this time. And at noon, Jeff and I would go get some lunch somewhere and hang out. And then 1 o'clock, 1.30 rolls around. And then people start rolling in from the Portland Pride 
uh, corporate office, the general office, whatever you want to call it. And then uh, Jeff Sanders Promotions was our advertising firm and marketing firm. They would roll in. And now all of a sudden, Billy, we go into like setup mode and we would uh, start applying the dashboard advertisements along the walls, <laughs> we along the boards. Um, we would put up advertisements in the concourse areas. We'd set up uh, stands for the program vendors. Um, ushers would start rolling in. Concession stand people would start rolling in. The teams would roll in. The referees would roll in. We'd have locker rooms specifically for um, the referees, the Eric Becks of the world. Eric was refing a lot back in those days for the CISL. Meredith uh, Vanderberg, uh, she would come in and be a ref. Legend. Um, yeah, at Craig Hill. Uh, we're just you know yeah. throwing out some referee names. And so more and more bodies would show up. And then once the teams started coming in, um, they'd get situated in the locker rooms. Um, they would basically get taped up, do their uh, stretching, um, and the trainer, Jeff Baird, or whoever our trainer was at the time, they'd start doing their taping of the players' legs and whatever else they needed for pregame um, you know, uh, therapy, if you will. And then um, at that point in time, we would be on walkie-talkies and check along. Jeff would be more with the team and Bainey at the time, and I would be more uh, switching hats to helping out with the business side of it and making sure the national anthem singer was there and ready to go, making sure uh, the music, uh, a guy by the name of Denny Went uh, was our PA announcer for a few years. You know, Denny? Yeah. Um, he's, he's the, know, he gave me my start with, with Howler. He was... There you go. Yeah, it's fantastic. And Denny's one of the first PA guys we had and a great guy himself. And um, we make sure all our operations were in line with uh, promotions during quarters, promotions for halftime. I just had this large checklist. And, and under all of that, I'd have seven or eight interns. And they'd be usually soccer, high school soccer players of mine, male and female, that would help out and do a lot of the running around for getting tickets for the players up to will call. Doing all kinds of things with the you know ushers and the, uh, the program um, vendors food vendors, um, everything. And so it would become 7, 7.05, and the kickoff would be coming up. And um, I finally got to take a deep breath because everything was set in terms of promotions and operations, and the game would start. And then I got to kind of kick back and and watch and enjoy the game. Um, that parlayed into working for the team um, as a full-time employee, um, because yeah. I wanted to commit to that. And that was what I really felt comfortable doing. I was very much into the setup, the operations, the checklist. And then I got hired on uh, when Norm Daniels uh, took over. He, the former G.I. Joe's owner has since passed away, unfortunately. But uh, Norm Daniels and his ownership group with John Zupan, who owns Zupan Markets, and a few other uh, uh, owners that were uh, helping out, they basically brought me in full-time and I helped out more with the soccer camps. And then I became the director of operations for a year or two and really did, I just polished up what I was already starting uh, with Jeff Brooks and I starting that whole thing out way back in the day. And then um, we got into, I want to say the 97 season, Billy. And um, the general manager at that time was a guy by the name of Bill Lavelle. He was from North Carolina and I worked in the office full time and Bill pulled me into his office in the off season in 1997 or excuse me, 1996. I can't remember the exact timing of it, but Bill Lavelle says, Hey, listen, I want you to know that um, I'm going to be resigning from the company this afternoon. 
I'm not sure where this league is going. He didn't have a lot of confidence in what was happening. And so he left and he went back to North Carolina. And then I met with the ownership group and they promoted me to be the general manager for what I think was probably the rest of that year or the beginning of the Pythons year, which is, I think when you stepped in as a player, professional player, and I um, was a general manager at that time, um, running the ship uh, for the what was the Portland Pride, and that manifested into the Portland Pythons. So I know in your game day you left a lot out because if the turf doesn't fit, there's work to be done. If yeah. you know the the boards, the the you're manually applying the advertisements on the every single board. I mean, there is a litany of things that could go wrong, that could need yeah. to be addressed. And you know, I I asked in part because I want people to get a look at like just the indoor world and how setup goes but the amount of people who give their day and i mean day like their whole day their lot their the day of their life goes to preparing for now and outdoor the two hours we as fans get right and so we have that experience and the amount of people that are you know their day is making that experience happen and i'm not talking about even the players at this point um it's just amazing to me like how many people are involved in um, creating the soccer experience we have, but it's from a, a, you know, down to just for them, it's going through their list of things that need to be right. So they, we can have the experience they want us to have. Yeah. Real quick on that turf uh, topic too. Um, you're 100% right. The turf would contract or expand depending on uh, the climate outside, honestly. And so when the Rose Garden uh, employees or the Memorial Coliseum employees would bring their forklift in, they'd bring in these huge rolls of carpet, which were essentially our turf. And it was amazing to me. We would get it all set up and then you'd walk along the boards on one of the sides of the field and you could literally see a two inch, maybe three inch gap between the turf and the board, which guess what? You Now you've got a cement, you got you got concrete exposed. And I played many years of indoor and I think, oh, we're going to have like eight ankle blowouts in one game. This is terrible. So what we would do couple of us would basically get what we call our scraps area of the turf and we would have to cut manually with razor blades um, pieces of turf to fill in that gap so it would be somewhat slippery possibly but at least there wasn't this gap between the turf and then the cement and um, that's I appreciate you bringing that up as a as a consumer as a fan they would walk in sit down in their seat have a you know a bag of popcorn a soda or whatever and a beverage, and then they would watch a game. They had no idea that we were an hour before they showed up, literally piecemealing in pieces of AstroTurf to protect the players' ankles and whatever else in these corners uh, and along these sidelines. Some games we got so fortunate that if the boards were put in correctly and there wasn't no expansion or uh, you know increase or decrease of the turf, Basically, the turf fit in fine, but I'll tell you, there was a handful of games where it was a panic to get these uh, patches of turf fixed. And so I've got two two things I'm going to get you into here. One is, um, can you, so, so one thing I want you to do quickly is talk about the different logistics of going to the Moda Center or what was then the Rose Garden, because when I came on, that's where we were playing. And that's a different yep. beast because it's a different, it's a, such a different experience, a different building, especially at the time when it was just built. Um, so can you kind of talk about the logistics of that transition, but also could you give a quick primer as to the difference between the Continental Indoor Soccer League and how that was structured and organized and what the goal was and the, um, I forgot what league I played in, 
the, the PSA, well, the I Premier think, Soccer Alliance, right? Yeah, Premier Soccer Alliance. And so can you yeah. can you talk about those sort of um because there's a reason the Portland Pride didn't exist in ninety eight, but there was an indoor soccer team, it had a different name and uh, it's a different right. time of year. And can you so can you talk about those two things? Just kind of give a, a primer of the you know yeah. what soccer was um, like here. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go with this, the facilities itself. So we, when we played in the Coliseum, we only really shared it with the Blazers and the Winterhawks, and it was the Portland Pride in the old Coliseum. The Coliseum during the summer months when we played, uh, there the Blazers were done for the most part, and so were the hockey teams. So we really had full reign in there unless there was a truck show and or a concert or something off the wall like that. Um Easy building to navigate. Uh, and the, re- the way I, the reason why I said it, you could get to any place in that Coliseum by hopping over a, s- a row of seats or go through, a, you know, a door and you were where you needed to be. Um, easy facility, old facility, kind of smelled down in the in the basement. I call it the basement where all of the turf was stored and just all the equipment and everything. It was just kind of an older building. It just had this weird aroma in there, and it was just kind of like. Your, your old school uh, facility to play indoor soccer in and or any other sport. But we knew the Moda Center was coming up. So then the Moda Center starts getting built. And we were still in the Coliseum. This is 1990, uh, I want to say five was our last year in the Coliseum. But the the Rose Garden people at the time, they and Paul Allen and his group, they wanted us in that facility because they wanted us to get all the uh, kinks out before the Blazers started in that fall or, you know, winter months. And we were, we were really kind of, I think the first professional uh, organization to play in the Rose Garden when it was completed, the summer came about, we played our games in the Rose Garden and it went pretty well. But here's the caveat with the Rose Garden, couple things, uh, the elevators, um, you could get on an elevator end up in a freight elevator and you'd end up on a floor where we didn't have access to, cause we never opened up the third deck we didn't get a big enough crowds for the third deck per se, or you would go out through a doorway, Billy, and try and get in a staircase. And you'd go try and get back through that same doorway. You just came out in the staircase area and you try and get back into the bowl area and you got locked out. So now you have to walk all the way down the stairs to get to floor level to get back entered into the Rose Garden. Um, there was just a lot of weird kinks, but it was a beautiful facility, still is. Here's one thing that I, I'll never forget. I was working in the facility one day. I don't know. We were doing something operationally down there. And somebody from the Rose Garden said, hey, Rob, what are you doing? And I go, I did, we're just finishing up here. We're going to be gone in about 20 minutes. And we'll be done with our operation. And he was like, oh, actually, I was going to see if you wanted to go up to Paul Allen's suite. So if anybody's been in the Rose Garden, if you look up real closely, it's in either one end or the other. It's in the rafters. There's a full-on apartment up there. And this apartment can only be accessed through one elevator. And it was probably Paul Allen with the key. But at the time, the Rose Garden wasn't fully completely done or or it it didn't have very many people in there. Anyway, this usher takes me up in there and it literally had a full on living room, a kitchen area and two bedrooms. And it was a incredibly decent sized loft apartment, if you will, that was up there. And so the reasoning for that was it was for Paul Allen if he had to spend the night after the Blazers game. Um, he would, we, we never saw Paul Allen at a pride game that I remember, but if he was at a blazer game and he did not want to get on his plane or his jet to go wherever else he was going or drive up to Seattle where Microsoft was or wherever, you know, he needed to be up there in Seattle for the Seahawks. But I got the tour of that whole apartment come to find out later it was built for Paul, but it was mainly built for his mother who was of age at the time. And that was mainly built up for her in case she was in Portland 
And um, they had a place for her to stay for free anytime within where Paul Allen typically was, which was in and around the Rose Garden. So it's, if you ever go in the Rose Garden and you go and look up through one of the end zones, I can't remember if that building faces east or west or north or south, but you look in the end zones and you look straight up in the rafters. It's actually, I think, hidden behind one of the big scoreboards for the Blazers. Um, and it's a full-on apartment up there. But I was, I was pretty privileged to go up and see that thing. Um, when I really probably wasn't supposed to be up there, but the usher said, you got to come check this out. Can you <laughs> imagine that tells if, you that. if we had smartphones then and you, you would have gotten in trouble because you would have taken a picture, you would have posted a picture. Oh, yeah. I, right? It was so impressive up there. And it was top shelf. I mean, it was Paul Allen's money and it, it was his building. Nothing but the best for Paul. And so what was and you then, mentioned? Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. And so real quick, uh, the Rose Garden was a great um, up upgrade for us. Uh, the facility was good. We had the lower bowl. If we got eight to 9,000 people at a game, which was a high watermark, um, that would fill up almost the whole lower bowl. Um, we occasionally would open up the second deck, which was the black seats near the uh, luxury suites. Um, and so we would once in a while get a pretty decent sized crowd there. The, the legit, uh, the, the sound was in the re, uh, the uh, replay uh, board scoreboard was incredible. The technology, this is nineties. So I'm going to date myself again, but back then, you know, to get a good replay on a good screen and have good, uh, good sound in there, good acoustics. So that building was, was really good for indoor soccer. I, I, I really liked that building a lot. And so you mentioned something about dates and about getting in there. So that, the CISL, a lot of the teams were owned by NBA franchises because it filled summer dates that weren't being filled in their buildings, right? Yes, for sure. NBA owners, NHL owners, they all had a part of our league and they did it to fill dates and fill inventory for uh, events at their at their uh, facility. So we played down in Anaheim at the Pond. That team was owned by the um, same team that was running the NHL team. And so they loved the fact that they could run their NHL team from, I don't know, they'd start preseason in uh, August or September. Their full regular season would October to March. They'd finish up. They'd have a couple months maybe in between, maybe some basketball in there, and then the soccer would kick in there too. So, yeah, the CISL was built around filling – dates for these facilities in the summer months that was a big push by ron weinstein and that old continental indoor soccer league and then what was different then about the psa and can you talk about do you remember why the team didn't retain its name when other franchises yeah. did retain their name yeah um we okay so when the league in uh, 1997 the cisl at that time i think we were down to maybe eight teams um it, it dwindled a bit from the years previous to that so here we are in 1997 our ownership group which is owned, like i was mentioned earlier owned by norm daniels gi joe's people with zupan markets and a few others um they for whatever reasons were getting disgruntled with the cisl and gordon jago uh coach and kind of the general manager of the dallas sidekicks started dropping hints that he was thinking maybe we start up our own league run the revenue streams differently run the whole uh league a little bit differently and who wants to join so at the time it was dallas portland arizona and sacramento all said we're with you gordon jago he was kind of the de facto uh commissioner of league even though he was not commissioner and all four of our teams bounced and so if we had a eight team league and four teams leave that depletes the CISL. 
So that happened. The CISL essentially folded. We were hoping we could have gotten Seattle to stay on board, but the Ackerleys left, and that was part of the Sonics, Seattle Supersonics. They were still playing, I believe, back then. They jumped ship. Um, a bunch of other teams said, no, we're not interested. We may join back in with you in a couple of years. That was always crazy to me. These teams would say, we're going to take a year or two off. We might join back up with you, but we needed them now. But as it turns out, uh, Gordon Jago went full steam ahead with the four teams. But then he also, Billy, and this is about when you probably came in, he said, let's get some uh, friendlies in with Canada. Let's get a friendly in with, uh, I think, El Salvador might have come through That's Portland. Right. Let's get a friendly with Brazil. And we all of a sudden we're marketing. Here's our league of four teams, but we're also going to fill dates with, say, four or five other friendlies. And we'll play each of our four teams in the what we would call the Premier Soccer Alliance that you played in. And you may be playing twice at home, twice on the road. So you basically had enough dates to kind of at least say, we got a 12 to 14 game home stand uh, for the summer. Let's get people coming back out. And back to your question, I, to this day, don't have a full, I think, uh, full reason why we switch names from the Pride to the Pythons. My only thought is, and I never talked to Norm. I wish I would have before he passed away. I think that he was worried that Ron Weinstein and the CISL, which was now folded, would come back and sue the Portland team for keeping the same name. Maybe the league owned the name. But what's interesting is the sidekicks got to keep their name. The Sacramento Knights kept their name. The Arizona team kept their Thunder. name. That's why I hesitate, you know, on my answer. So I love that. We just we put on a mustache and some funny glasses and went back out there. I know it. And so, yeah, the Pythons were born. And um, I love the logo. Andy McNamara, who you had on your podcast, does a great job with getting the promotions out there. He had a lot to say with which way the team was going from a marketing standpoint, the PR standpoint. Um, Andy's great, great person. Uh, I enjoyed he and I were full time office employees. um, And a couple others, they ran our crew, man, at that time, the office was very small in terms of bodies. Uh, we didn't have a lot of employees at the time, but what you're saying earlier, we wore a lot of hats and we just wanted to see this thing work. Well, there's another person I'm going to get on here soon that, that bridges both of those. And that's Chris Hershey. Who, oh, great. Yeah. Louis the lion or Louis uh, the lion. Our mascot. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so the pythons, uh, played for two years. Uh, I left after the, I was, let go actually the ownership got you know said you're you're done and thanks for your service kind of thing and we're going to move in a different direction that was 1998 okay and i had one year and then 1999 is when uh the league folded that was one year after i left and i think there was a gentleman by the name of uh, ken i'm going to forget his last name that kind of was pushed in the spot of the general manager in 99 with you guys but uh I tell you what, really, really quick. Um, that that year when you guys were playing and Ralph Black was coaching um, that Pythons team, that team was absolutely almost positively grassroots. I talk about you and Kylie Couch and Zach Chown, Nick Vorberg, Jared Jansen. All these guys were local players. And Ralph always had a good thing to say about you. And he also had a really good thing to say about Kylie. And what he loved about you, Billy, is your left foot. Guess what? Ralphie was a left footer too, right? And Ralph was like, okay, Billy, Billy can play the left 
He's a solid player. He knows what he's doing. And that guy could ping a ball with his left foot. And then he loved Kylie. And we all know Kylie, as far as the fire in that guy's belly, Kylie never stopped. And he's coaching, I believe, down in Dallas right now. Good he's for the him. assistant coach with the Dallas sidekicks. There right? you go. And Ralphie was a big fan of both your guys. And Nick Warburg stepping in for Brett, like you said, when Brett's knee went out. Um, you guys had some big shoes to fill. And you, I thought you guys did a great job playing. Ah, thanks for saying that. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I look back on uh, getting to play with Ralph Black and Billy Crook, people I watched play. Um, yeah. And then in kind of the same place where John Bain was playing. And then, you know, guys that I watched when they were in college, Jeff Betts, Rob Bartz, Joey Leonetti, mm -hmm. Eric McClellan uh, was on that team. Like these are just some great guys to be around and learn the game from, but also, you know, spend that phase of life with. Yeah. Yeah, Billy Crook, great mentor. I forgot to bring him up earlier, too, because he he and a couple guys from Tacoma, like the Neil Megsons, Billy Crooks, uh, Ralph Black, um, you know, Dickie came back down from Seattle to play for Portland. There was a lot of players who traveled back and forth on that I-5 for the better of uh, the Portland's, you know, franchise. Yeah, and Billy Crook was the type of guy that would sit with any player and answer questions as long as they had them he wanted to pass the game on pass on the yeah. right things and he really took on wanting to be a mentor even though he was you know working up in Tacoma and then coming down for games uh but when he was there he was super present and I just he and, and Ralph you know everybody's got some good Ralph stories oh, oh, never ending but it's never cool to, I'll say it's cool to to play for someone I watched as a kid right to, to go play with Ralph Black and then yeah you know I felt a little bit of pressure being a left-footed defender because that's what he mm -hmm. was. And he was, yeah. you know, his playing days were coming to an end. And um, so there were some interesting conversations about that. And I just, pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Ralph was a good guy. So, um, you know, Rob, I've got just one more question, if you don't mind kind of uh, putting it all into perspective for us, I could sit here and talk to you all day. And um, I swear the nice thing is if I get to like 25 episodes of this, I've got 50 episodes because I need to go back to everybody and, talk about the things we didn't get to um yeah but, no yeah fire away I'm, I'm good so i had a um i was thinking about this as i was writing your questions and i look at these these three moments right so you i mean obviously grew up with you know the sounders were here so the nsl was here but you specifically you've got that fc seattle time right and so that's in the mid 80s mm -hmm. when there is no professional national league uh and the people who are in it are building these you know they're they're holding serve Right. That's what those yeah. leagues were doing. They were holding serve, trying to get back to something. So 19, you're, you're with FC Seattle. You played it when the University of Portland Warner Pacific era, when that was another thing. That was the closest we had to professional soccer and some of the names that came through both of those programs. That was a big deal for this part of the state before there was anything in Civic Stadium or when there wasn't. And some of those teams played, um, you know, their winter Western uh, Alliance, you know, whatever name it was in there but mm -hmm. those two moments are, are huge moments of holding serve the portland pride and portland pythons and i know that some people have different things about indoor and outdoor it wasn't the first iteration of indoor soccer the timbers played in 80 and 81 they were 80 81 81 82 they played two seasons of nasl indoors but that pride to pythons gave guys like you know like i said joey leonetti rob bartz jeff betts uh these these are guys who and i probably missed a ton that gave them a chance to have a professional career because 1996 was when major league soccer started. And so yeah. my question is this is, do you ever just think about like, those are three main points of your career, but those are really significant moments where people who are involved in the game 
were holding the game for us until it could get to where it is now. And do you ever like, I hope you appreciate your role that you had in that, especially thinking of those three moments, but do you ever, you know, think about yourself as someone who is a builder because at those key times you were keeping the game going sometimes for free, sometimes down there with a pen knife in the basement of the Coliseum, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I do think about that a lot as I get older. Um, I think that what I was given the opportunity by Bernie Fagan to get into Portland and have a kind of a impact, uh, from a coaching standpoint, I got to play a lot, uh, with some really good players and some good people, but, um, there's a book that I read in a, uh, it, it, it's called the lost years and it's all about soccer and it was about soccer in the time period between the old NASL and the MLS. And um, the reason why I, I talk about that is if you want to talk between 1984, 85 and when the MLS started, which Billy was 96, I want to say, Correct. or maybe. Yes. Okay. So if you look at that time period, let's just call it 10 years, whatever, nine, 10 years. Um, there, to your point, unless you're a Casey Keller and a couple other players, you can go and play in Europe at a very high level. I just appreciate the fact that I got to play against him for a few years and he was playing over in the EPL and just tearing it up and doing really well. But for the Americans that were back here in the United States that could not break into a European league or South American league, like you said, everybody had to kind of chip in to kind of keep whatever momentum we had to keep it going till MLS, you know, league arrives um, I really wonder, not just for me, this is not about me. This is for a lot of players that were in at that time. A, a guy like Rob Bartz, great player, comes down from Canada. Jeff Betts, he got a little sniff in the MLS with San Jose Clash, as they were called back then. But if you if you think about the big picture, and there was a really a bona fide professional league that was structured well, those guys really missed out on something. I feel like I got, you just went through a lot of it. I, I piecemealed a lot of different chapters in my soccer life, I guess, during that time period that really turn out to be meaningful to me individually. It may not mean anything to anybody else, but I feel like um, I'm glad I was young during that time um, and it's not happening right now. Um, I'm glad it's in the past in terms of getting a really legitimate professional league in here. But it was it was tough. It was tough because there was a lot of great players out there who could not go anywhere and people who really should have gone somewhere and been paid a decent amount. I don't know how much that would have been, but they never got that chance or even just live that fantasy of being a professional athlete. Um, the FC Seattle thing for me, just being involved with Cliff McGrath up there and getting chosen to be a part of that playing for Bernie at Warner Pacific, coaching with John Bain at Mountain View High School. Um, being a big soccer fanatic, I still am today, but, you know, as a young kid in Seattle with the Sounders, um, one thing I really want to just say thank you for all of this to you is the fact that I'm in a weird position sometimes. I have Sounders gear in my closet and I have Timbers gear in my closet. And I admire both franchises, both organizations. They bring it from a crowd standpoint, support standpoint. And it's not so much who I like the best or who I root for the most. It's more like the soccer, um, you know, ceiling atmosphere right now in Seattle and Portland, the Pacific Northwest. It's amazing. I never, I said at the beginning of this podcast, I didn't, I literally wondered 
if there would ever be a big league in this area that I could really be passionate about. And it's here. I'm glad it's here. I'm glad the Timbers are where they're at. I'm glad where the Sounders are at. Um, and I literally have had a great fortune to be so involved with the Portland area um, with soccer at so many different levels. And, and a lot of it was built in Seattle with my passion and my early roots of soccer. But I really got to live out some really cool things down here in Portland. Well, Rob Hawksford, thanks for giving the time uh, to share your story. Do me a favor and just stay fit until 2025 uh, spring. Yeah. And then <laughs> we'll get to play together again. And your um, probably best chapter of your soccer career will start, right? What? Hey, Billy, thank you so much. Um, I was out there practicing with Kells this morning at 9 a.m., 36 degrees out. Um, I, I can't give it up. One day I will. But um, thank you for everything you're doing with this podcast. You do a tremendous job and keep it going because this is, for me, I love hearing it, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that love hearing it themselves and your momentum is just growing every day. So keep it up. Cool. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. See ya. You ain't got to be too unjust Round to a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer Which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio You will see it on TV That when the Portland boys appear You will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour Soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers And winning is our aim So let's scream.